Father, we thank you so much for this morning. What a privilege it is to be together, to worship you in quietness, and then also rejoice over the fact that we've been given new lives. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for chasing us down. Thank you for revealing yourself to each one of us and being so personal. As we look at this next session of Nehemiah, Lord, please speak to us. Much to glean, much to consider. Uh, Lord, continue to cause us to grow in our relationship with you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 5 where it says this. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Verse 1 says, introduces the chapter, that Jerusalem now explodes with emotion and crying and complaints and probably some tears. Reminds me of the dad I heard about who was watching his daughter and her friends out in the backyard playing, and they were having a great time, and then all of a sudden an argument broke out, and they were arguing, it got louder and louder, and so he went out the door and he said, would you guys stop, you know, arguing and get along, and they, okay, so, so, sorry, dad, and the daughter said, well, dad, make sure you know this too, he said, we really weren't fighting, we were just playing church. <laughs> oh, wow, that hurt. There's some truth to that, though, that though we're saved and going to heaven, we still have a sin nature, and because we do, there's going to be conflict as a part of our life among church believers. In 1976, a book was published called, it's a great, great title, Great Church Fights. <laughs> I've not read this book, but uh, the subtitle of the book said, Common Conflicts in Church and How to Resolve Them Biblically. It's really, it's a record of real-life stories of believers who had conflict in church over important issues and then how they resolved them and overcame them, but also the stories of those that were not quite so important and how they responded wrong and the consequences of that. It might surprise you if you didn't know this or haven't thought about it, but there are examples in the New Testament of conflict in church. For example, the disciples, uh, right before Jesus went to the cross, they got into an argument over who was going to be the greatest. So you can see them kind of jockeying for position and who was number two in the kingdom, as it were. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, in the early church, uh, an argument exploded in, among them uh, because the widows were being neglected in the food distribution, and so kind of a you know, big dispute and argument broke out over that. And then the church in Corinth, don't even get me started on all the conflicts that were happening there, all the problems that were surfacing there. A few years ago, there was an online Twitter survey where they invited people to share their own church conflict stories and what happened in the church. And so here are a couple of examples I thought you might enjoy. One church argued about the communion service, uh, whether or not it was okay to use cranberry juice rather than grape juice and gluten-free crackers rather than real bread. In fact, people got so mad that some people actually left the church. Another church had an argument that exploded over whether or not it was okay to serve deviled eggs at a potluck. <laughs> and they solved it, though, by serving for dessert angel food cake for dessert. So they kind of balanced itself out there a little bit. And then there was one intense dispute I read about where, <clears throat> where they argued over which picture of Jesus they were going to hang in the church foyer. And so it kind of exploded, and then they resolved it by all admitting that nobody actually knows what Jesus looks like. <laughs> J. Vernon McGee, and I'll spare you the, the, uh, the uh, accent, he said, if the devil can't destroy the church by persecution, 
then his next tactic is to join the church and start a bunch of fights. Well, in the first four chapters of Nehemiah, we've seen thus far Nehemiah leave his position as cupbearer in the uh, Persian or Babylonian government, and he returned to Jerusalem to oversee a group of Jews that were going to go there to resettle and rebuild the walls around the city. Now, they had everything they needed. They had God's favor and leading. They had the king's permission plus protection and provision for the walls and the work. They did face some problems, though. The city had a lot of rubble. It was a big job. The workers were pretty unqualified in the job. And then there were a number of attacks that surfaced from the local terrorists, if you will, uh, that threatened to kill them and kidnap them. But in spite of all those challenges, they were making progress. The walls were going up. And the people worked with a real passion. They had a real mind to do God's work. In fact, the record in chapter 4 says, in the one hand, they had tools for construction, and the other hand, they carried swords. And by the time you reach chapter 5, the wall is about halfway done. Well, all that comes to a screeching halt in chapter 5. The shocking thing about chapter 5 is, is the building stops and nobody's working as they deal with some internal issues. From a very unexpected source. Verse 1 tells us from the fellow believers and brothers against brothers in the area in Jerusalem. It's a chapter that's full of complaining and selfishness and exploitation. Reality is every believer faces problems from three sources. There's the world that's going a different direction with a different value system. And the world will tempt you and try and sidetrack you and tangle you up and hinder your walk with the Lord personally. But then there's the devil, secondly, who brings spiritual warfare. In this case, in these verses, uh, mocking and discouragement. The devil will try to draw you into sin and selfishness and ruin your life personally, but also hamstring the work of God in the church. And then the third problem area is the flesh, the sin nature, my flesh your flesh, our flesh, our sin nature, which for most of us is probably the biggest problem we face. And the truth is, all of us wrestle with sin, all of us wrestle with our thought life, all of us wrestle with our choices, and Christians don't always do what's right. Any Christian can be selfish and carnal and sinful and downright mean. And when they are, that will cause real pain among other people can stumble, especially new believers, and blindside those that were not expecting it. It's one of the reasons why people leave a church. They say things like, well, where's the love? Uh, It was easier before I got saved. And oftentimes, it's conflict that will lead to tragic church splits. And some of you have been there, done that. You've been through difficult things in another church setting or whatever, where there's bitterness and sometimes even backsliding. So that's why God included chapter 5 of Nehemiah. It's an example, a chapter that not only demonstrates what happens or can happen to a church, to a group of people, but also instructs us on how to deal with it. And what you're going to find is that problems with believers is not an elective course. <laughs> Everybody gets to take this class. Uh, you can't take underwater back, you know, basket weaving and surfing in place of it. Everybody has to go through some of this in their Christian experience. So chapter 5 uh, offers some wisdom to glean and some encouragement. Let's pick up the reading in verse 1 again. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. 
There were those that said, we are sons and our daughters are many. So population growth, many were going back to Jerusalem. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. So a second problem, not just population growth, but a famine hit the area. There were also, verse 4, those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. That's never good news when the king wants his money. So taxation on our land and vineyards. Yet now, verse 5, our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their kids. We're all the same. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, buy them out of that arrangement. For other men have our lands and vineyards. And I, Nehemiah says, became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers. Those are the perpetrators of the problems at this point. And said to them, each of you is exacting usury. That's the old word for interest. In this case, exorbitant interest from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. All right, there are the details. Let's, let's talk about what's going on. Great outcry, verse 1 says, a huge emotional explosion in Jerusalem over problems and the work on the wall stops. Let me explain kind of what happened. Because many were returning to Jerusalem and because of the work of the wall, most of the men were working on it. The harvest season came, the crops were coming in, and all the manpower, for the most part, had been rechanneled from the farms to building the wall, which produced a shortage of workers in the field, and that forced both the wives and children to work the farms, which only made it worse, further caused a shortage in food supply. Then a famine hit in the area, so food got scarce and expensive, and it became very difficult for people to get food and feed their families. If that were not bad enough, and the Persian government still demanded its property taxes, they don't ever seem to be very patient, and what you've got is a financial food crisis that's challenging the families and workers in Israel. Now, you probably can't relate to that. Here's a word you might uh, understand, inflation. <laughs> What's going on is inflation, food's becoming scarcer, they're all working two jobs, their farm and the wall. They can't pay their bills. It's tough to feed their families. They can't seem to get ahead. And many were losing their homes to debt. So they were forced then to borrow money and sell their properties to be able to feed their families and pay taxes. And here's the tragic, sinful thing that was going on. Some of the believers, some of the brothers, some of the family members of Israel we're taking the opportunity to make money off the misfortune of their other Jewish brothers and family. Now, they're exploiting them for their own personal gain. They were lending money like loan sharks or pawn stars, a really high interest rate. And they were treating their own brothers, their own family, like the world, which forced their children to end up, in some ways, working off the debts that they were incurring. Now, step back a little bit and think with me. Part of this is not wrong, but there were laws that governed these very circumstances. Deuteronomy 15, Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 25, uh, God had laws in place 
to govern circumstances that happen this way so that they would handle it right, have the right goal and the right heart. First of all, lending money was help. If you have a mortgage this morning, aren't you glad the, the bank trusted you enough to lend you a little money so that you can live in your house now and pay that mortgage over 30 years or whatever? You're enjoying your house now because somebody lent your money. So lending money is actually help. And it eased the burden on some of the families that saved their farm and their land. But the word of God said that they were not to charge interest on their brothers or their family. Secondly, they could work off the debt as a servant. That's actually a good thing, too. That was allowed. But it wasn't free money. It's not America. I'm just saying. You had to pay the money back. Yes, they would lend you money, but you had to pay it back. And one of the ways you could do that is to work off the debt by working for the guy that holds your mortgage, and you could ultimately redeem your land and get your home back. But again, the law said the lender had to be patient and compassionate an understanding of the conditions that they were in. And then every 50 years, they had the Jubilee Feast, which was, God said, in every 50 years, they were to cancel all debts and all the land went back to everybody's home. Wouldn't you like to have that land, that law here in America, you know? And what it was, the reason why that law was in place was because they didn't really earn the land. They didn't buy the land originally. That land was given to them by God. It was a gift of God. So that land really was God's land. And as long as they obeyed him and worshiped him, they could live in his land. That was how they leased it from him. And so God reminded them, every 50 years, any loans you had out or any money you lent out, it was to be settled up and forgiven in that 50th year because it was his land. And you were to help your brother out. And so it gave everybody a whole different attitude about lending money, borrowing money, and it gave them a whole different attitude about the heart toward their brothers. Now, the real issue in this chapter is this, is it wasn't the right time, or any time, I should not the time, to exploit your brother to get rich. Because of what they were doing in Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall and resettling the land, it was a time for compassion and patience with your brother and seeing the bigger picture and having the higher priority. Because all the wall workers were doing their part. They were making their sacrifices to build the wall. And because of that, everybody in Jerusalem was be benefiting, including the rulers and, and leaders and the lenders. So in the same way, the lenders and leaders and rulers were to have the same attitude of sacrificial help in that time to understand, cooperate, and do their part as well. So Jerusalem is exploding with an outcry and lots of emotion. So poor Nehemiah, he's facing something he probably wasn't expecting. He thought, okay, I'm going back to Jerusalem, going to build some walls. Okay, yeah, big job and all that, but how simple is that? Great thing to do. Everybody's going to be happy about it. Everybody's going to be nice. And then he goes there and discovers that the people in Israel, like here in America, they're a bunch of sinners. And that Jerusalem is really not an ordinary place, and it wasn't. Jerusalem was the city of the great king. It was a part of God's divine plan for the world, divine plan for Israel. That's where the temple was. That's the place where his presence would manifest. That's the place where sin was forgiven and sacrifices for sin were offered. And it was also the stage, ultimately, where Jesus would show up and the plan of salvation would take place and he would die for our sins on a cross. And then even beyond that, Jerusalem plays a role in the last days scenario. And then on into eternity, there's a heavenly Jerusalem. 
So it's not an ordinary city. And let's remember, most of the Jews that were there in Jerusalem in these days were born in Babylon, not in Israel. They were living there for the first time. And they had come from Babylon, which was the wealthiest, most immoral, pagan, pleasure-centered nation on planet Earth. And when they got to Israel, they brought with them the value system of Babylon. And they're finding out it won't work in Jerusalem, and it won't work among God's people. And so poor Nehemiah, he's discovering he's not just building walls, he's rebuilding people. Oy vey. <laughs> A much bigger job than he thought. And, and the people of Israel have things to learn, certainly, by living in God's city under God's, world, uh, under God's rule, but also some things to let go of and unlearn. And what Nehemiah is finding, too, is you can take them out of Babylon, but it's a lot harder to get Babylon out of them. And that's why chapter 5 explodes with emotion. Now, by the way, that is essentially your story and my story. The church is not a building. We're not an ordinary place. Like Jerusalem, we're a divine part of God's plan. We're God's divine family. This is a divine institution called the church. We're called the body of Christ. Jesus promised where two or three gather in his name, there he is in the midst. This place is like no other place in the world. It's not like the world. There are different rules here, different priorities here, different standards here, different behavior here. And just like Jerusalem and the believers there, when you receive Christ, many of us have come from Babylon too. The best Babylon going in the world today, I think, is America. And we've come out of a worldly lifestyle, a worldly mindset. We bring baggage with us. We come with a selfish mentality and orientation. And it takes time, once you receive Christ, to be able to reflect that new relationship and a changed life. We all have to grow. We all have things to learn. We all need to mature in our love for God and our love for one another. And just like the Jews, uh, conflicts in Jerusalem... There will be conflicts in the church, and that's very normal because we're all growing at different stages of life and all that. We're all learning new things, and we're all growing in our understanding, and every church is going to have bouts of complaining, and every church has selfishness that will surface, and Calvary Chapel of Santee is no, no exception. <gasps> I just said it out loud. Now, I've been a pastor for 40 years, a little more, and over the years, I can say this is certainly true. In every setting I've been in, three different churches, I've seen this to be true. So here are a few of the common complaints that surface as a church is growing and people are growing in their walk of the Lord. Now, let me just say it never happens here. Uh, you guys are the perfect church. Pretty much like Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. So as I mentioned these things, they've never happened here, probably never will. So don't take any of these things personal, but you know, those other places. Let's talk about them. So some churches will say this. Boy, it's not very friendly here. The people are pretty cold. In the same church, they'll say, people keep hugging me. I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. Church is too dressy, too formal. It's all stuffy and religious. Or they'll say, it's too casual. You know, they wear Hawaiian shirts there and shirts and, and shorts and flip-flops. I don't like the pastor when he talks about taking, uh, making people make a choice about receiving Christ. It puts pressure on people. I don't think that's right. And then those people will say, well, why didn't he give them a chance to receive Christ? I brought my unsaved person here just so that they could receive Christ. 
But church is too, uses too much humor. It's disrespectful. The same church is too serious and too heavy. We could laugh a little. It'd be good for us, you know. It's too loud here. I can't hear. Turn it up. It's too cold. I'm cold. It's too hot. Turn on the air conditioning. There's too much history and, and doctrine in the sermons. It's like a seminary here. It's not doctrinal enough. The sermons are all fluffy and irrelevant. The church is too charismatic. They're always raising their hands and standing up and praying for healing. It makes me uncomfortable. It's not charismatic enough. Why can't we have a whole service where everybody speaks in tongues for an hour? And then there are things that are a whole list of things that are never true, like we don't roll in the aisles here, the pastors don't drive Beamers or Ferraris, and we don't secretly dance. Well, okay, that's not true. Dan does actually dance without your knowing it. So just like Nehemiah, we are in a divine institution called the church, and we are experiencing some of the same common struggles that any group of believers would. And we all need to be patient and kind. We all need to grow and love each other and teach the new believers and the next generation. There are things that we need to unlearn and things we need to learn to walk with the Lord. And it's a process we're all going through. And the hard thing is you're all in different stages. Uh, you are all come from different backgrounds, but we all need to be instructed and grow up in God's ways and God's definition. So Nehemiah, verse 6, responds by getting angry. Now, can I just say that's the right response and the right emotion to selfish exploitation and disobedience among believers where they're hurting one another. Now, this whole chapter is a chapter that's set in a business, financial, economic work arena. Now, isn't it true that you and I, as Christians, expect everybody else in church to be a Christian? Right? I expect you to be different. I expect you to be compassionate. I expect you to be, have integrity. I expect you to be able to be trusted. Doesn't it hurt more uh, when you get ripped off by a fellow believer? Do you agree with me? Okay, yeah. Like a Christian contractor or plumber or, you know, boss or car mechanic or you have a business deal with somebody in the church or whatever. Can I just say uh, that's also a two-way street because I hear it from bosses and employers and contractors because sometimes you may be burned by one, but it's very often it's the other way around where somebody will contract with somebody or be a bad employee or not, not follow through on a contract that they say that they're going to pay for work that they've received. Or you go to church and they take advantage of you, put pressure on you. You go through a circumstance where there's a conflict, somebody gossips about you, somebody treats you harshly. That can really blindside you and stumble you. So verse 7 says, Nehemiah calls a public assembly to correct the situation and to instruct them, and he's angry. The right emotion. Now let me just say a word about anger. Anger is a God-given emotion. God has anger. You have anger. You're made in God's image. You have the very same things he does. Jesus had anger. I don't know why that blesses me, but it always does. To see Jesus get angry always, for some reason, really makes me feel good. The reality is there's a right way to experience and display anger, and there's a wrong way to experience and display anger. You can be sinful in your anger and in the way you display it, or you can be righteous. You can be good. You can be the right response to express anger. 
The Bible even says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry. Well, that's a verse I can put down and put in my pocket promise book, you know what I mean? But it goes on to say, be angry, but don't sin. And that's possible. You can be angry, have the right kind of anger, the right kind of response, and not sin. Now, verse 7, practical. Nehemiah says, I gave it some serious thought. The Hebrew sentence basically means, I talk to myself. Please tell me you talk to yourself. I do that all the time. What Nehemiah did was he realized that if he didn't settle down a little bit and talk to himself, consult with himself, he was going to be punching walls or exploding or slapping people. By the way, in chapter 13, he does. <laughs> he slaps people. Now, I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to let it bother you for weeks. We're going to be there in a couple of weeks in chapter 13, but Nehemiah slaps some guys and pulls hair out of their beard. So I'll let you stew on that a little bit. But what in this point, he gives it serious thought. He restrains himself, and after that, he becomes a channel of the Holy Spirit to address this issue, and in the right setting, he rebukes them, and that's right. That's the right response. Reminds me of the husband and wife that had a big argument, and the husband tended to be the one that would lose his temper and be loud, where she usually remained cool and calm. So after a pretty good tiff, when everything settled down, he said, how do you stay so calm? And she said, well, I work off my frustration by cleaning the toilet. He goes, how in the world does that help? She said, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> That's not what Nehemiah did, by the way. I want you to know that. All right, verse 8, Nehemiah addresses the group that came together, and he said, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. And now, that's a time word, like right now. Right now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Take note of the response. Then they were silenced. Wow. And found nothing to say. Then I said, what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God? That was the problem, by the way. Because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies, I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending money and grain. Please let us stop this usury, this exorbitant interest. Restore now to them, even this day, right now, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and a hundred part of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So look at this response, verse 12. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them, and we will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath. So he singles out the priests from them that they would do according to this promise. Now, this promise could refer to what he said in terms of giving them their money back and all that, but it might be the larger idea of God's promise and God's word that govern these circumstances. Then verse 13, then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and they praised the Lord. I bet the guys who got the money back said that for sure. Then the people did according to this promise. All right. Nehemiah is angry. He gets himself in the right frame of reference and mind and attitude, and then he reasons with the people of Israel, and he says essentially this. He says, we just got out of slavery. We spent 70 years in Babylon 
under the boot of the Babylonians, uh, serving them. And now we're finally free. Finally able to go home and rebuild our lives. And you're going to gouge your brothers financially? And you're going to put God's people under financial slavery? Really? Is that what you're going to do? And the response is they're all silent. Now, let me just say that's a good sign. They're not defending themselves. I think there's more going on here as well. This is the Holy Spirit's conviction, and this is repentance. They're finally seeing things rightly. You've heard the old saying, one man's you know, problems, another man's opportunity. That may be true in America. It wasn't true in Israel. You weren't allowed by God to take advantage of your brother. So they're finally seeing things right. And he says, you've lost the fear of God. And by the way, that was the problem. And that is a very scary place for a person to get. To get to a place where you're able to cheat and exploit and impose your selfish desires on people without having a conscience. Or find some way to rationalize it around it by treating people badly. By the way, I think that's the condition of America today. We've lost the fear of God. Not only are we not going to church like we used to, or people heeding God's word and rejecting the Bible wholesale in a lot of situations, but people are now living in sin without any conscience. They use and abuse and confuse this next generation, especially in a lot of ways, especially in the, in the gender arena, and they call it freedom. They rationalize it as saying, oh, I'm being my true self. I've got to be true to me. That's the most selfish thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Now, interesting, he calls out the priests and makes them take an oath. Now, why would he do that? Why would he call out the spiritual leaders in this situation? Because they bear some responsibility. Because evidently, though the population had returned to Israel, they weren't really teaching the word like they were supposed to. And so people, and rather than being instructed in the new, in the ways of God, and guiding them in the right way to see things, the people were ended up doing what they wanted because they didn't have the full understanding of God's word. Another problem I see today in our, our country, the organized church in America, many places don't teach the Bible anymore. And because of it, people are uninformed, they don't know how to walk with the Lord, <clears throat> they continue with their worldly uh, value systems and worldly choices, and here's, I think, one of the biggest ones. Because they're not teaching through the Bible anymore, they're unaware that we're probably the generation that will see Jesus return. So verse 12 is a pretty encouraging and incredible verse. It says, the leaders and the rulers responded right, and they said, Got it. And we're going to change. So they restore, get this, they restore and refund everybody's money and return their property. This is the biblical concept of restitution. God's big on this. It's not just say, I'm sorry, not just get your forgiveness, but make it right. Restore what you took from somebody, as it were. He makes them swear an oath. Words are cheap. And then he shakes out his robe in this cultural symbolic gesture. Basically what it meant was, if you disobey, if you don't follow through on this, may God empty your pockets. May you experience a little bit of what you're imposing on somebody else by your selfish desire to take advantage of them. Now, the cool thing here is the whole assembly. I have to get what that means. 
probably close to 75,000 people back in Jerusalem at this point. The whole assembly praised the Lord, and a lot of people got their money back. Now, we know why they're cheering, right? But what we're looking at here is something, I think, pretty incredible. This is large-scale reconciliation. This is brothers and sisters and families and cousins and the people of God going, oh, gosh, I can't believe I was so selfish. I can't believe I did this to my own family. And they're asking for forgiveness, probably a lot of hugging going on in that, in that statement. And forgiveness is flowing and a lot of tears. Pretty amazing, amazing scene. Now, verses 14 to 19, let me just summarize them for you. And let me say a few words about Nehemiah as I close. The last verses in this chapter say Nehemiah had been appointed as, uh, as the governor by the king of Persia. And so he was in control, if you will. He was the governor of the area, had a genuine heart for God and for the people. And though he had the legal right to provision from the local taxes, in other words, he should have gotten a salary from the people that were living in the area, if you will, uh, to be able to support him as governor. He chose not to take that salary. Now, probably partly because the Persian government supplied some of his need, but because of the present crisis and the condition of Jerusalem and the priority of the work of God there in building the wall, he didn't want to make matters worse by burdening the people with that provision. Now, I thought about this. Wouldn't it be cool? Okay, we're in election season. Oh, boy. It's going to get wild this year, I guarantee you. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear some of the candidates, all of the candidates for Congress, Senator, President, whatever, to hear them say, so we're $34 trillion in debt. How about that? Did you know that? It's a lot of debt. Because of the present debt and because of the condition of our country, and we're so disunified, is that the right word? We're not unified that we're not going to take a salary, and I suggest we put God first back in the nation. Okay, I'm a dreamer. I get it. Dreaming. I, I get that too. But, what, I mean, that's what's happening in this scene. That's what we're witnessing in these verses. By the way, uh, it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, if a politician leaves office more wealthy than when he came in, he has to be a thief. <laughs> Let that marinate a little bit. So Nehemiah, the details tell us, personally is lending money and helping people but not buying their land. He's not charging any interest. He's not going to get rich off the misfortune of other believers. And if that were not enough, he himself went to the job site, worked on the wall himself. And beyond that, he fed 150 people at his own table every day. And visitors that were coming into the city to find out what was going on in Jerusalem that were there interested in helping the work. And Nehemiah displays something very important that there's a famine for today. He was a man of real integrity. He was a man who cared. And the truth is, more and more our society, our culture is becoming, there are people that are willing to destroy our country for power and position. I've even seen spiritual leaders that will destroy a church for power or pride or money and certainly uh, sexual things. And look, Nehemiah, it says he feared God, which meant this, in a practical sense. He imposed on himself limitations. 
There were things he would not do that were his to do, that were legal to receive. There were things he would not do because of the condition of Jerusalem and the work of God. He cared more about the work of God than his own rights or his own freedoms in in that sense. And he loved God more and his people more than he did getting his salary. Pretty amazing. A couple final applications and thoughts. As I look at this chapter, one of the things I'm reminded about is conflicts with believers are normal, and I add the word inevitable. You're going to get your chance. Church relationships can be messy. You want to know why? Because people are imperfect. And it takes time for people to grow up in their faith and to be able to mature and to love each other as they should. Hey, there are right reasons to leave a church, false doctrine and endorsing and practicing sin, and there are a handful of things that make it a good idea to get away from a place where where the gospel's not being preached and where the word of God is not being upheld. But can we be honest? There are healthy churches that have problems too. (laughs) And every Christian in every church needs to learn how to forgive and reconcile and repent and be kind and pray for one another and be patient with the new believers and those that are learning how to walk with the Lord. So conflicts are normal and inevitable. Secondly, this chapter reminds me that integrity can be easily lost. The rulers and leaders in Israel did. But it can be regained. And, and they made mistakes. They corrected what they were doing wrong. They had burned people and took advantage of people. They changed what they were doing. They changed their habits and their priorities. And they did what Nehemiah said, and they regained their integrity, and the work of God went forward. Look, maybe that's you. Maybe in a previous season, you've not been the best person. You've made some mistakes. You've burned some people. Or maybe you're the one that got burned, and you went through a difficult thing. If you take wise steps, and like Nehemiah, impose on yourself, there are certain things I will not do because I care about God's reputation and God's people, and there are certain things I will do that I don't get compensated for, that I don't get kudos for, that I don't necessarily always get acknowledged for. But I do those things because I'm a different person now. I I see things differently. I want to please God and love God's people. And the truth is, if you don't do that, you're going to leave behind yourself a bunch of wreckage, and you're going to learn nothing in the process. And it's obedience and humility and forgiveness that will rebuild some lost integrity. One last thing worth mentioning, the last verse, verse 19, Nehemiah says, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, I read this verse in a couple different commentaries. Some said Nehemiah's tooting his own horn. Oh, look at me. I'm the good guy. I was doing all the right things, and they were all the bad guys. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Nehemiah here is asking for God's notice and remembrance. By the way, he does this seven times in this book. He says, Lord, remember me and for what I have done. Now, can I just say, there are lots of things I want God to forget. In fact, my list is getting longer. I want you to know that. I'm I'm a sinner too, you know. But they're all things I want God to forget. But the beautiful thing is, Nehemiah says, Lord, I'm doing this, and I'm doing it not for men, I'm doing it for you. And if you're going to record anything about me, Lord, remember that I loved you and I honored you and I loved your people. 
There's a good goal for life. Good goal for life. So perhaps this chapter impacts you. I don't know. Maybe you've been the one that's gotten hurt. Maybe you've been exploited. Maybe you've been backstabbed by a believer. And you've had to endure difficult things. You know, if I had a magic wand, I would love to be able to wave it and have that all go away. And, of course, you're a part of a perfect church, so that will never happen here. I'm just saying. (laughs) Obviously, I'm kidding. If you've gone through a hard thing, or maybe you're the problem, or you were the problem, I should say. Maybe you were the one that made the bad decisions and did the things you did. Look, I'm sorry. Those things happen. I don't want to diminish somebody's sin and say it's okay, but can I just say inevitable? Inevitable, those things are going to happen. You're going to have to take that course in the Christian life. Why? Because you're in an imperfect place among imperfect people. But the church is still a divine institution. Jesus is still here. This is not like any place on earth. You're a part of something that will last forever. You can pick your friends. You're stuck with your family. You're stuck with each other for eternity. I'm just, you know, that may or may not be good news this morning. But, I'm just, but that's reality. But here's the wonderful thing, is that Jesus seems to love imperfect people. He likes to hang with imperfect people. He's not embarrassed to call us his people. And he is patient with imperfect people. So I think a good thing to pray, a good thing to pull away from these, this chapter is, Lord, <clears throat> make me more like you. Amen? Let's all stand together. Did you enjoy yourself today in church? Yes. Shouldn't. Should never have fun in church. Just want you to know that. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Nehemiah chapter 5, for what it demonstrates, for what it reminds us of, and the way that it instructs us, Lord. Pray for any this morning who have been through a rough thing, a rough church experience, burned by a believer or a church scenario. Just pray your forgiveness, your peace would wash over them, Lord. Help them to let go. Help them to be restored and and help them, Lord, to continue on in their journey with you, trusting you for circumstances. And then, Lord, if someone has been the cause of problems, and we probably all have to one degree or another in one setting or another, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Help us to take to heart the idea of restoration and reconciliation and restitution, not just enough to say, thank you, Jesus, for my forgiveness. Help us to restore relationships. And then, Lord, help us to to be wise. Help us to be a congregation of people that love each other though we're a bunch of imperfect people. Thank you for loving us that way. Make us like you. In Jesus' name we pray.